welcome to the Arna Law Podcast. In the second part of our discussion on the art of mediation with Sridham Panchu, renowned lawyer and pioneer of mediation in India, we discuss some of the most high-profile cases he has mediated, including the Ayodhya Ram Janabhumi Babri Masjid dispute and old border dispute between the states of Assam and Nagaland. The discussion also moves on to explore how mediation can be used effectively in a range of matters from corporate, family and international law. Stay tuned for this fascinating discussion ahead. You had the rich experience of mediating Ayodhya. What are your learnings and experience of mediating that dispute? Ayodhya is a fascinating case to mediate. Um, you know, every mediator in the world is jealous of me because of I got Ayodhya. Um, I mean, it has everything in it. It has history. It has it has it has law. It has religion. It has court cases. It has violence. It has the huge two huge communities of the world, you know, battling each other. Um, it had everything, every element of conflict. So to be given the the great good fortune to be part of a mediation effort uh, is, I think, a blessing of the Almighty. And for me, it was a, it was it was an amazing experience. Uh, I'm bound by confidentiality, uh, you know, in, in, in matters. So I cannot divulge uh, what happened in mediation proceedings. Um, there's as much that I cannot talk about. Um, but at this I can say that my principal takeaway from Ayodhya is that, and this is not just from the mediation itself, it is from you know reading about Ayodhya from the time it started, is that when there a public dispute breaks out, mm-hmm. the, the most the most strongest voices are those on the margins or on the extremes. It is the extremist, extremist view which commands the most attention because their voices are the loudest, the most strident, and their acts can be negative, and all this grabs attention. This marginalizes people in the middle. It is the people in the middle who will be the, the larger number, who want a consensus, who want a solution, who want to move on, who don't want this to break society. But they get lost or marginalized or they get shouted down or threatened, and some of them have to move towards the extreme ends. So I find that my conclusion is that if one has to deal with public conflict well, we must, as a country, build up that energizing, harmonizing voice in the middle. We must create the power of the commons, the people who say, no, we are one country, we want to find the resolution. If you are our leaders, find it for us. And I know this for a fact that if there had been that kind of groundswell of opinion, then a very wise leader of the Muslim Personal Law Board in the 80s, who advocated a form of resolu- a peaceful resolution, would have had his way. And he would have been, you know, he would have been met on the other side by wise Shankaracharyas. And the two of them together would have had their way to find a good resolution instead of which it went into the hands of those who are more on the extreme margins. So this is my huge learning from Ayodhya. 
And from this is born the desire to work towards, you know, creating a center for moderating dialogue more on that later. So what in your opinion should be, uh, or what do you think are our leaders today, uh, both in government, in bureaucracy, should be thinking about uh, and of incorporating mediation? Uh, how do you think that, you know, they could bring mediation into the mainstream? Well, I would think that if, if, if I was in, if I was you know given charge of a blueprint um, for mediation, I would do the following. I would recognize that mediation has come center stage. I would recognize that the only way in which I can salvage the legal system is to create that center space for mediation, to professionalize mediation, to infuse its practice, incentivize it, and see to it that personal, commercial, civil, property conflict went off the courts and onto mediation tables. I would keep the courts for public, you know, for, for constitutional cases, for interpretation of statutes, and for directions. I will also make the courts focus on cases of corruption. Corruption, not you know your bus conductor corruption, but corruption of senior most leaders. I would make the courts focus on that. And I would make the courts focus on serious crime, like hate crimes and murders. And I would say that the courts got to these cases quickly enough. And if you move you know, the mass of commercial personal conflict off the courts, the courts can get to these cases quickly enough. Having done that, I think this is, would be a place where you start. This would be a place where you start. And then I would view the court really, you know, as, for me, the court is a protector of the constitution. I don't see the court's role so much in resolution of private conflict. When the court gets into private conflict, I feel our adversarial systems would make more damage than anything else. But to me, the court's primary role is a protector of the constitution. We are an amazing country. We are a country which has a wonderful, the most wonderful constitution in the world. And that constitution is our Bible, is our Gita, is our Quran in our public space. You know, in our private spaces, we have our religions, our respective religions. But in the public space, we have only one religion, and that is the constitution. And we are marvelously lucky to have such a wonderful constitution, you know, which has every humane and civilized aspect in it, which has our freedoms and protection, the fundamental rights, our duties, our checks and balances. So, you know, for citizens to swear allegiance to the constitution and for the court to be seen as its ultimate protector is where I would like the system to go. And I would like to see the cases of conflict being ironed out in a far more humane way. I think it's entirely doable. Nothing of this is asking for the moon. It's entirely doable and it's doable within a short span of time. Thank you. The Assam and Nagaland dispute was another significant sensitive matter that you mediated. Can you share with us that experience? And again, the outcomes and learnings from that. Yeah, I spent close to two years in that dispute, you know, 2010 to 2012. 
Um, I've never been to Northeast before. And that took me almost every three weeks, three days in a, in, a, in, a, in a week, two weeks, I was in Gauhati or Dimapur or somewhere in that. Um, it is amazing because it was a, it was a 60-year-old dispute over their entire border between Assam and Nagaland, stretching 500 miles, square kilometers, in seven districts. And they had fought over this from the 1960s and had lost hundreds of lives. And they had a case in the court pending from 1988. And when it came to hearing, Justice Kadro again, he said, you know, what is the point? We will decide for one state against the other and you will keep fighting and you will keep, there will be violence. We'll give you a mediator, you try. So one thing I found was a willingness to engage in mediation. Just the fact that, you know, we could get people to talk was enough for people on the ground. You know, to give them a sense of hope and say, you know, let's not engage in any fighting. There is some effort to speak. There was a willingness on the part of the, the administrators, the willingness on the part of the chief ministers. They actually wanted a resolution. And at one point, maybe we could have had a resolution in terms of, you know, exchange of some territory, plus some very innovative methods, because ultimately these are two, you know, states within a union. These are not two different countries. And one thing I found in the Assam Nagarin case, which is a classic mediation lesson, um, you know, this is the story of the orange. Uh, the two girls fight over an orange, and uh, they, a judge will say, "Well, I'll look into law and I'll see where did this tree grow in which part, which of your parents' compounds, and where did, where was the overhang, and I'll decide who owns the orange." And an arbitrator will say, "Well, maybe we'll, I'll give you 50-50. But a mediator will ask the question, he would say, why do you need the orange? And because they're talking to the mediator in trust, they will open up. And one girl just might say, I need it to make juice. And the other might say, I need the skin to make marmalade. And therefore you have a solution where you can give both of them the maximum. You know, it's one thing, these creative, these creative out of the box solutions, then you get plenty of them in mediation. When you actually get people talking as to why they want something, you will very often find that one person wants something for one reason and the other wants it for another reason. And this translates all the time. You know, I've seen couples coming to mediation and the husband saying, I won't give up this house, it's my family property. Because when he says, I won't give up the house, you say, why? He says, my, my family property. And you ask the wife, why do you want this house? And she says, I need it to stay and for the children to go to school. You know, they're completely different reasons as to why two people want the same thing. But once you know that, you can craft an answer. So go back to Assam and Agarland, and you know, you discover that one side wants the land because they cannot be seen as having given it up. Politically. And the other side wants the land because they want to use it. So these are completely, you know, different uh, uh, reasons. And we have enough in our constitution, the fifth and sixth schedule, <clears throat> which could have helped us to create councils which would satisfy the needs of both sides. But the whole of Assam got locked into a huge conflict because of a conclave exchange between India and Bangladesh. And therefore, for reasons out of our control, we found we couldn't proceed you know, with land issues. But what we did do, which again is interesting, is we created border peace committees comprised of Assamese and Nagas in each district. 
and we kind of empowered them and you know made sure they were recognized and given a car with a flag and all kinds of amenities. And these committees, you know, have been so useful that whenever some issue breaks out, they get to the site of the clash and they diffuse it because they're both Assamese and Nagas and respected people in these committees. And they have kept the peace. I've rarely heard of a border clash over the last so many years. Um, so I think when you empower people, you energize them, you infuse them, you'll get results. And it's also a question of justice in their hands, right? They are the ones who are facilitating the outcome. And they are the ones who are negotiating it, accepting it, and sharing it with their community. And I feel like, uh, you know, in the courts, of course, courts definitely have a place for it. But uh, in certain instances, it really is finding a creative solution amongst parties. And the more that it's done by these individuals themselves, the higher the chances of it being accepted on both sides, implemented, and continue to maintain good relationships. Yeah, right. So in hindsight, what role do you think mediation could have played uh, to resolve complex historic conflicts such as the Kaveri dispute between Karnataka and Tamil Nadu? Well, it may not be just hindsight. I don't think that conflict has gone away anywhere. So you could very well have that back on a mediation table at some stage. But I think it is this. I think it is to engage people on the ground from both the states, especially people who are affected by this and people who are knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. And I know that years back, there was an effort in the direction. Farmers from Tamil Nadu uh, were engaged with farmers in Karnataka in sitting down and seeing how this could be resolved. And there was a very good monograph brought out on that. And to anybody who's interested in you know, looking at the Kaveri dispute, I would suggest please read that monograph. It's authored by S. Gohan. Um, and, uh, and it gives you a very interesting insights on how you can actually resolve it. And what it proposes is to say, let's, let's change the model from sharing in terms of TMC, you know, volume, to sharing in terms of percentages. So that mm -hmm. when we have problems, you know, we share in terms of percentages. Uh, one side is not totally deprived. It's a very interesting module, um, but it is a case. And once you go through that process, I think then you people on both sides emerge with a better understanding of each other. Till then, it's all about demonizing the other. You know, you want to make us starve. You know, you want to ask our, our ground to run dry. But when you get understanding, then you get this thought that maybe we should find some things which suit both of us. Um, which is the only way. I cannot think of any other way. What other way we can find answers? Thank you. Thank you for that. Can we now move to a more international perspective? Mm -hmm. In 2019, over 45 member states of the United Nations including India, Iran, Israel, and the United States, came together to sign the Singapore Mediation Convention. How significant a development is this? I think it's a huge development. The Singapore Convention is called the, um, the Ancestral Convention on Enforcement of International Mediation Settlement Agreements. Now, uh, this basically provides that if you have a mediation settlement between a, 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 a person or entity of one country and one of another, um, you know, an Indian company, an American company, for example, 
Um, that agreement is enforceable and has a strength of a, of uh, is enforceable and has a strength of virtually of a decree of court. So you can take it to any country, which is a signatory to the convention, file it, and say, I want it to be enforced. And you don't have to go through the process of filing another suit all over again. The court will take it as though it is a full-fledged decree and send it on to enforcement. And as you know, for a mediation agreement, there is no defense. You cannot reopen it on a question of fact. Uh, there are no defenses to somebody who signed a mediation agreement and uh, the court will not entertain a defense. So it is virtually automatic uh, implementation and enforcement, which is something business people don't have in adversarial uh, litigation, nor in arbitration. Uh, sometimes their bigger headaches start after they have an award in their hand and they go to try to implement it. But the mediation, you have no backstops. So this answers, in fact, the one need of business to say, we have a mediation agreement, how do we enforce it? The Singapore Convention now gives you a brilliant method of enforcement. Thank you, Sriram. I'd now like to move to private mediation and look at you know, commerce and industry. With most large businesses being family-run in India, when there is a shareholder dispute, like the one between Tatas and the Mistries, do you think that mediation could pay, play a role in conflict resolution? I certainly think so. And I certainly it's something that should be tried before people you know, go to litigation. Or even if they had to go to litigation, you get your interim order necessary, then go to mediation. Uh, because, you know, um, the toxic effect of dispute gets, you know, multiplied when it's a family business. Because then things are not just boardroom. It is boardroom and living room, you know. And it's members of family. And sometimes it's not just members of family, it's members of community. I think the Tata's Mystery's uh, fight was disaster. It was disaster for the two, the, the, the two groups, the Tata's and the Mystery's. It was disaster for the number of companies, which even so, I think independent directors taking, you know, some sides uh, taking sides with Ratan Tata, some with sides mystery, and it was disaster for the community. In fact, I think I would strongly advise, you know, for large companies, please get yourselves in terms of, you know, when you have these kind of cases, think of going to a dispute resolution advisor. You know, who can really advise you to say, look, for this kind of dispute, try this process and who could structure the mediation for you. We have very senior judges who are good mediators. We have other wise people who are good mediators. Get them involved, see if you can sort it out. If you can't, go to court, but try it this way first. Thank you. I'd like to move also to the family mediation, where we're seeing that there are a lot of family disputes, not only divorce, uh, where interests of all parties and all stakeholders have to be looked at. How do you ensure the interests of all the parties are safeguarded? Uh, I'd also like for you to please focus on children. I think when you have family disputes or family mediation, there are two kinds. One is your you know, family mediation, let's say, which is having a matrimonial dispute. And I think a mediator, there must be a special regard to the plight of children. Children are the unseen parties at the table, but they are, I think, the most important parties. Beyond a certain stage, you give a damn about what husband and wife do to each other, they can run their own life. It's the children who really affect you. 
Um, so I think we, we caution our mediators to pay a special regard to children. Uh, I think in our processes, we must enhance that to make sure we have psychologists who take care of children's needs when their parents are going through a dispute. Um, and every mediator, when it has a mediation result, must take care that the interests of children are protected. You cannot have a mediation agreement go through your hands where sufficient care and uh, uh, provision is not made for the children. When it comes to a family business, for example, the mediator should remember that it's, there are generations here who will be impacted by this decision. And therefore, one must take care again you know, to provide uh, for equity over there. I do know now that there is a practice uh, several people have, uh, you know, have started approaching uh, for this, uh, where they say, help us for succession planning. You know, we want to do succession yeah. planning. We realize the disputes are probably, you know, quite inherent to crop up. So help us to fashion a dispute resolution methodology. And I think that helps because if the patriarch of the company fashioned the dispute succession plan and nominates a dispute resolution system, for example, dominates a mediator, then it makes it much easier when there is dispute. People that, you know, can access this person instead of fighting about what to do. So why is, I think, good heads of you know, family business outfits are doing this uh, to look to the future and set in force a dispute resolution mechanism. They're doing the wise thing of expecting dispute, you know. Don't get surprised by dispute. Expect it, deal with it, fashion the instruments for it, then you're fine. So do you think mediation should be made mandatory before going to court? Um, we have to approach that with caution. Uh, we must calibrate it. You know, we can't suddenly one fine day say it should be mandatory. You must first build up the strength, the resources, make sure you have enough mediators, good enough quality, that there has been an adjustment in, in the mindset so that more and more lawyers realize that mediation is professional and become professional mediators, that lawyers engaging in mediation for clients realize that it's, it's financially attractive. So you need those things to operate side by side before you can say, well, everything is mandatory. But sure, for a start, we can make some things mandatory um, and increase it later, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a multi-pronged uh, process and it should be calibrated carefully. Lovely. Thank you so much for your very patient answers to all these questions. Thank you for listening to the second part of our discussion on the art of mediation. This podcast is an extract from an earlier webinar held by the Bangalore International Centre. If you would like to listen to our other podcasts, you can find them on our website www.arnalaw.com and you can follow the release of new episodes on our LinkedIn page. We hope you learned a lot from this podcast and we hope to have you back with us again.